morning, good afternoon, good night, good whatever it may be for you right now. This is Lose the Taboo on Mental Health with Jared Cash. Buckle up, get ready, we going for a ride. Welcome to an exciting episode. This is a highly anticipated episode, uh, one that I've been really looking forward to because of my guest. I've got the one and only Dr. Dean Arp. Thanks for joining us and taking the time to do this. My pleasure. It's an honor to be here to talk to you and to be of any assistance and help that I can. Dr. Arp is a very sought out doctor uh, in the San Antonio area and the greater San Antonio area. I feel like I meet people all the time and I hear that we share the same doctor, that you're their doctor as well. I'm like, most of San Antonio sees Dr. Arp, I feel like. You realize it's a, it's a small world <laughs> you know, when you feel, you know, you start talking to people. It's a lot smaller than we think a lot of times. And I even saw that you won some awards. I looked it up in like consecutive years, like five mm-hmm. years in a row or something, you won most compassionate doctor. Yep. Is that right? That, that is true. Yeah, that, that is a humbling um, honor to be given. You know, but I think in the end, you know, for me, it's we all hope to go into a profession where we get to do what we like to do. And in the end, the bottom line for me is I like talking to people. Well, I like to talk <laughs> and I'd rather not talk to a wall. So I'd rather talk to people. It that's what out. in the end that does. It works out very well for a family physician. And uh, I would honestly say we could extend that probably to the most compassionate doctor in the universe because I yeah. feel like you would. Well, Look, you and I have known each other for a long time, so we've gotten to know each other. And I know your your nature and character and the things and souls you've tried to help through your work. So coming from you, that means a lot. It really mm. does, because we've known each other for a long time now. We have. You haven't been able to get rid of me yet. Yeah, no. And I ain't looking, <laughs> not looking to do that anytime soon. One thing that I really respect and love about Dr. Arp is that, most importantly, he's a man of God. And that's been such a neat aspect. Like you're saying... I've been seeing Dr. Arp since I was in high school, so he has had a hard time getting rid of me. Even when I moved two hours away, five hours away, I would still make the trip down to see Dr. Arp because he's been such a big part of my journey, my my goal of managing my mental health in the best way. Uh, so it really is an honor to have you on. Again, it's all the pleasures on mine, really is. To get us started, how long have you been a doctor and what led you to want to pursue this profession? So I graduated from medical school, Texas Tech Medical School in uh, 1999, and I was a resident in family medicine Mayo Clinic through 2002. That was in Phoenix, Arizona, Scottsdale area, and stayed in Scottsdale in the Phoenix area in private practice through 07, and then moved to San Antonio, where we've been in private practice, same clinic since then. You know, a lot of it in the end was, you know, again, being born and raised Methodist and being taught very early by my pastor that our goal here is to use our individual unique gifts to help people. It would just kind of was the thing that I found was going to be mine. My father uh, is an attorney um, in El Paso and always admired him, have been the best role model. He's kind of my hero, so to speak. So I was going to be a lawyer until we had a family friend who was a doctor and said, you know, I think he needs to come with me for one summer and do essentially an internship. That was probably junior, senior year in in high school and I still remember 
being on rotations, wondering how I was going to tell my dad that I wasn't going to be a lawyer, that just where I felt I needed to be. Yeah. Um, you know, the interesting thing in medical school was I was asked very early what I was going to be, what I wanted to go into. And I said, a surgeon. And come to find out that doctor I was talking to at the time told me uh, about three, four years down the road when we selected what we were going to be, which ultimately for me was family medicine. He said, I never, I always knew you were never going to be a surgeon. He said, it took me about uh, six to eight weeks working with you to know, he said, your profession chooses you. And in medicine, your specialty chooses you, not the other way around. Just a lot of it is just like, I like talking with people. I like the interaction that we get. I like the longitudinality. You know, there's a lot of specialties in medicine where you see people once or twice and you don't ever see them again. Um, being able to be a multi-generational doctor, you know, there's some families where we take care of baby, mom, dad, the mom, dad's mom, dad, and maybe sometimes mm-hmm. the mom and dad's mom and dad's mom and dad, you know. So sometimes we'll have multiple generations and you get to help people uh, in a manner as in your profession, right? You get to help ways, you get to help people in ways that nobody else really has the ability to do that, uniquely touch people and and help them really feel better and live better. Because again, in the end, going back to what my pastor taught me very, very early is, you know, people wonder what the often you'll hear what's the meaning of life it's very simple for him it's like you help people and that's just the way i found that i could help people naturally you know for me Mm -hmm. it's natural to talk it's natural to build relationships so it came almost secondhand fortunately yeah i love that about everyone can feel like you know what i'm not a pastor or missionary so I only can do a little bit of work for the kingdom of God, but it's like, no, God, he gives us passions and abilities to do different careers. And in that, we can make a huge difference by doing our part and and helping one person. And hopefully that snowball effect happens. So I love that. Uh, You know, a big question that a lot of people have been wondering and asking is mental health is mental illness a medical problem? Mm-hmm. And if it is, how so? I know that that's a large question. But. Yeah, no, it, it is a, it is a, it is a medical problem. Um, and in this context, and I tell people all the time, I a very firm believer that we are three beings in one. We are a body, we are a mind, and we're a soul. And it doesn't matter what your faith is, what your religion is. I think deep down we know that there's a body that's your your hands and your feet and your chest, all those other things. Your mind, you know, that's who you are as an individual. It, it is carnal. It is of this earth. Our personality is earthly. But then there's also that part of us that's eternal. That's our soul. Two of those three, the earthly parts, the body and the mind, are medical. You know, they are machines. We don't Mm -hmm. operate on, we're biological machines, right? We don't operate on gas and oil, but we do operate on, on oxygen and, you know, carbohydrates and calories and all these different things. And, And those are medical. So they are, they are, they're biological machines. And so it is definitely a medical issue that has, it is a medical condition and 
state of being that does affect those others. So that's a long-winded way of saying, yes, I definitely think it's a medical, um, mental illness is a medical issue. So what would you say here in that kind of definition of the three different parts, what is it that, that is happening in the brain or, or maybe not happening in the brain that causes or leads to mental illness? Sure. So, you know, when you think about, again, those machines and that, again, you know, we don't operate on like gas and oil, but we do operate on hormones. Body does, you know, those are like yeah. estrogen, testosterone you hear about. And the mind dust, those are neurohormones. And, and there's several different players, but when you, when you really start getting down to it, there's three main players. There's serotonin, there's norepinephrine, and there's dopamine. And although we can't measure them in a lab like we can somebody's glucose or cholesterol, they are there. Um, serotonin is our well-being hormone. Um, serotonin okay. in times of deficiency creates a lack of well-being. Um, a lack of well, you know, depression isn't not being happy or, or being sad. It's a disruption in well-being. And so is anxiety, right? In other words, we all have bad things happen to us. So why does somebody get depressed or anxious and the next person doesn't? Well, serotonin in a healthy, appropriate level, you believe, you really believe that it's going to be okay. I, I just have to go on. This feeling doesn't last forever. I just need to move forward. And that's good and bad, right? That even the good times, it's not always this feeling isn't going to last forever. I you know, need to measure my response to it. And so when people's serotonin levels start to drop or they're insufficient, people begin to have a disruption in well-being. Maybe everything isn't going to be okay. And they believe that. As somebody who has a healthy well-being believes it will be, somebody who doesn't have, believes it won't be. And then from that, then comes the next anxiety. Well, what if it really isn't going to be okay? You say yeah. it is, but it isn't. Then that can become depressing. And so you can see how disruptions in serotonin, especially over a long period of time, disrupt that sense of well-being. Um, norepinephrine is our go get hormone. It's what drives us to do whatever it is that we we do um part of that is an anxiety that's healthy right why do we pay our taxes because you don't want the irs coming after you yeah. you know and so it's the anxiety of the irs coming after you you make sure you do your taxes so there's there's a healthy type of anxiety and a healthy type of motivation that's something like norepinephrine when it's deficient people begin to have a drop in their drive so although they know they need to get something done they just don't have the drive to do it. And then, then that deficiency and, and, and completing tasks and can lead to anxiety. And so those, that's how something that's low out norepinephrine can then create an anxiety. And then there's dopamine. Dopamine's the most interesting. Dopamine is the pleasure hormone. So mm. you think in deficiency that there's no pleasure. It's really what we call in medicine anhedonia, which is a robot is anhedonic. It does a robot does what it does because it's told to do it. Well, we're not robots, and one of the main things that make us not that way is dopamine. So why do we do what we do? Why does one person go play golf and feel satisfied at the end of the day, where the next person goes and 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 woodworks or goes and coaches gymnastics or or, or whatever it is that fulfill somebody it's because of dopamine so when dopamine levels drop people begin to feel like you know what i tell patients is the wash rinse repeat of life they get up 
go do their job, get done what they've got to get done out of the obligations that they have, and then they go to sleep. And they wake up the next day, and they're just not happy. Nothing them, to look forward you know, to. Right. Are you sad? No. Are you depressed? No. Are you motivated? Yeah. Well, what's up? Well, I just, nothing makes me happy. And that and that's a deficiency in dopamine. Mm. So a lot of times when we're talking with people and, and patients about what it is, you know, sometimes people can, they just feel off. You know, family members tell them or friends tell them or they just feel off. We'll go through those different things to kind of find out, you know, they don't know people don't, people don't come in and say, my norepinephrine's low, right? But you mm-hmm. can tell through what it is that they're experiencing what's different now versus a month ago, a year ago, a decade ago that tells you maybe what deficiency you're, you're dealing with. It is then, and the reason I guess going back to why I say it's medical is from a medication standpoint, we do know that we have medications that are able to work at those specific neurohormones to treat whatever those deficiencies are. And when utilized the right way, we see reduction, if not complete resolution of those, of those um, symptoms. And I know, you know, just having you describe those and explain that probably brings some comfort to some people because they probably, you know, like I have before, there's probably a lot of people listening that say, there's something wrong with me. You know, I'm crazy. Someone else doesn't deal with it. And it's, and it's not that someone's just being lazy or someone's crazy or weird. There's actually something that's happening. There's a deficiency. Correct. And, and, and you hit on something very key, which is we, so remember going back to the three beings, Two of those three beings are determined by our genetics. Mm. You, 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 you have no control over what your genetic makeup is. Some people are much more predisposed genetically to deficiency than the next person is. So really, again, in talking with patients and especially trying to break down the barriers and taboos that we deal with in mental health is helping people understand, you know, somebody who has a heart attack at age 40 and their dad had a heart attack at age 40 and their dad's dad, you know, you would never go to that person and say, you, you must be doing something wrong. You must be eating terribly. You must be a couch potato. You must be smoking. You must be a drinker. We yeah. don't go to that person. We understand that there is a genetic makeup that predisposes people to that. And, and mental health, is, is no different. We are who we are at a genetic level. Now, that doesn't mean that our environment doesn't act upon that because it does. You know, certain people have certain stressors that, you know, kind of when the stars malalign, you know, it creates a, a significant stress. In other words, that situation interacts with a person's genetics and it can happen over a long period of time and they have significant mental health consequences from that doesn't mean that they're crazy. Um, you know, and again, that's the first part. The second part is dealing with social taboo. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, the, I, the perpetuate the idea of being perpetuated that, yeah, you know, if something's going wrong, you need to just pick yourself up by your bootstraps. And if you can't do it, it must mean that you're mentally weak, physically weak, or spiritually weak is wrong. I mean, it's just not, not based. It's not fair to the person. It's not based in any good kind of logic. And that's one of our big goals, and that's why I love that you're talking about that, is we're trying to lose the taboo, trying to help people understand that, that it's that it's not that you don't believe in God enough or that you're mentally weak. It's There's something that's actually there that's real, that's, that's causing you to feel this way. 
Correct. And to, to view life in this way. You know, what I always challenge people to think of is that our genetics are not, so I guess to take it a step further, people who do have, say, anxiety, generalized anxiety, there's not, they're not genetically deficient. You know, we are, in other words, there might very well be some time, maybe it was 100 years ago, 200 years, 300 years ago, where their genetic makeup would have served them very well in their environment, where in that time, in that setting, they wouldn't be the one that was anxious. The next person would be. Mm. So in other words, what I tell people is, it is not a genetic deficiency as much as it is a mismatch. In other words, the way you are neurochemically made up doesn't match your environment. It, the, it's, so the, the combination of the two creates stress. Well, so what we want to do in those instances, we either want to try and adjust the environment, which when it's a workplace or something like that is hard to do, or we need to begin to work at people's neurochemical level. So again, I always challenge people to remove any idea of genetic deficiencies or inadequacies and just think of it as, it's look, it's the way you're made up. It's who you are. And to some degree, it's just a mismatch. It's like having, uh, uh, it's like having highway tires when you're trying to go four wheeling. Well, what's yeah. wrong? Is it, what's wrong with the tires? Well, nothing. What's wrong with going four wheeling? Well, nothing. The tires don't match the terrain. So it's not that there's something wrong with either one of them. We just need to try and get them to match each other. And that's why I try and tell people your genetic is your tire makeup. The terrain is your environment. So it's not, neither is deficient. They just don't match each other. That's how you know, and you can think of that, yeah, that's logical, that makes sense. That's how you know there's nothing wrong with you. You just need to get, you can't, often we can't change the terrain. So as a doctor, think of it no other way. Seek help, get the tire changed. You, you can change your tires. You just need to go, you just need to go to the tire shop, yeah. so to speak, right? That's so interesting. I've never heard it said in that way, but that makes perfect sense what you're saying. And kind of going back a little bit, you had mentioned that in the medical field, we're not able to, to test this on like in a lab and it's a little bit more definite, I guess, that way you, or you, can, you can tell sure. results a little bit sooner maybe. How far along would you say, I know this is a big question, but how far along is the medical field in really understanding mental illness? You know, not... N- at its basic level, I think we're good, but I think in understanding it fully, we're not we're not very far along. You know, in other words, we really have nothing that allows us. You know, there are certain saliva tests, other things that can be done to detect what looks to be a deficiency. But in the end, when you do those saliva tests and you see hormone levels, do they always correspond to a certain symptom set in one individual that you will then see repeated over the next group of individuals? And the answer is no. And that's the hard part about it is that, well, what a certain serotonin level will produce in one person, the symptoms, whether it's a drop in well-being or none, won't do that at all in the next person. And then in the next person, it's different. Western medicine is very scientific. It, it likes to study things and have very reproducible results. Mm-hmm. When you start getting in any form of hormone, whether it's testosterone replacement in men, um, talking about hormonal replacement in women with menopause and other things like that, 
our bodies and our minds and how it affects us, it's very, very different, which makes talking so important mm-hmm. and, and time. Right. And one of the main limitations in Western medicine, unfortunately, is time. Doctors are in a big hurry. Right. You hear it all the time. You know, doctor was in for for two minutes going over my test results. And we're going to do this, this, this and this. And something like mental health care that doesn't have good studies that are objective that you can say, okay, we see this level. And at this level, you're going to experience this. So we do this. You have to rely on talking and, and good communication between a doctor and a patient. And we're not, we're not there. I think we're trying to get there, but we're not there. And so when, when we're not there with that, I don't know how you can say that we're far along and really understanding mental health and being able to treat it um, effectively and efficiently. Do you feel like if people started to have that communication more, what would be the next step after that? Yeah. So, you know, that's, it's the next step is the first step is knowing that there is nothing wrong with you. You know, you know, again, going back to kind of pastor thing, you know, and, and I don't know what the example was that he used, but he, you know, some scenario where he said, is the strong person, the person that admits that they need help or is a strong person, the person that needs help, but pretends they don't need help and puts on an air of strength. Well, mm-hmm. we all know the answer. The strong person is the person that comes and says, I can't do this alone. I need help. That's strength. You know, humbling. It's not even really for me a measure of humility. It's just one of understanding that we all need help in something. So the first step is is getting that is however that person wants to, whether it's a friend, family member, reaching out, getting help. It doesn't mean that you don't wait till somebody's suicidal. It's, you know, something, have you noticed, do I not seem the same? I'm feeling this way, expressing those symptoms. It can be to a doctor. It can be to a friend. It can be to, to therapists, you know, um, therapists are to our mind, what a physical trainer is to somebody's body and, you know, and kind of going back to the taboo part of it, you know, if you, you know, those three being the idea of the three beings, you know, if you you know, it's, it's the time of New Year's resolution, right? You know, we're in January and you tell somebody you got a physical trainer, they're like, hey, that's great. And you tell somebody that, you know, my resolution, I'm going to go to church every week, I'm meeting with my pastor. Hey, that's great. You tell somebody you're seeing a therapist, what's wrong with you? It's like, <laughs> yeah. no, there's nothing wrong. You know, so the, the bottom line is there's nothing wrong. It's just that you've got to get understand that we weren't born knowing how to exercise our mind and knowing how to teach our mind. So the first step is talking. And then the second step is finding what coach you want. How mm-hmm. do you want to do that? It can be through going to the doctor. Um, unfortunately, doctors have the appropriate reputation of here, take this medicine. It's, you know, especially with me, it's not always that way. It certainly can be. Yeah. Um, but therapists going and seeing a therapist and with the idea that, and, and learning or relearning that a therapist is not, it's not a Freudian thing like you see on TV where you're lying on the couch. It is the exact equivalent of going to Planet Fitness or Gold's Gym and getting a physical trainer. And what does the physical trainer do? It says, what are you trying to accomplish? What it is your experience? Do you want to run a marathon or do you want to, you going after cardiovascular health? You're going for bulk. Therapists do the same thing. They what guide you, ex- you through it. That's right. What are you experiencing? What seems different? What do you want to accomplish? Let's talk and let's teach you how to get there. The hard part about that is the analogy stays the same. You go see the physical trainer, but the physical trainer is going to, one of their 
requirements of you is that you're doing a lot of work on the sides. It's, there's nothing magical about it, right? You know, you got to go, they're going to train you, but then you got to put in that time, that mental exercising to get better. But that's that, that's that next step. You mentioned medicine. I want to get your thoughts on that for a lot of people. That can be a struggle. They have sure can. all kinds of different thoughts about is medication okay for me to take? Is it right? What exactly does medication do? Sure. So medications, so there are there is a small subset of medicines that we use for depression or other medical conditions, uh, mental health medical conditions, that we don't know how they work. We know that they work at certain neurohormones, but we don't know exactly what they're doing to do that. But that's only a few. Most of the medications, when you hear of Prozac and Zoloft and all, you know, the kind of the more common medicines you hear about, we know exactly what they're doing. We know where they're working, at what level they're working. And so, for example, Prozac, Zoloft, Lexapro, there's there's a number of them. These are called the SSRIs or the Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors. They do exactly what the name says. They selectively inhibit the reuptake of serotonin, which means serotonin's around for longer in, in, mm. in somebody's mind. Well, when you know that serotonin in an appropriate healthy level helps with well-being, Something like that medication will help keep serotonin around and will help enhance somebody's sense of well-being when it's been disrupted. Um, medicines, there are certain medicines that work at the norepinephrine level. There are certain medicines, that would be an example of that would be Effexor, would be a, a Pristique is another one that we know works at norepinephrine. Some and, medicines. And what exactly is that? So norepinephrine is your motivation hormone. That's, That's right. your motivation, go get them, neurohormone. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, dopamine, we, Wellbutrin is a very common one. Bupropion is a very common one that we know works at dopamine, which is why when you know that there are medication options that we know work at certain neurohormonal levels and you can deduce from talking with somebody what they're experiencing, what changes they're experiencing, you, you know what medicines to begin with. And then you can begin you know, to tweak depending on if they're having side effects. Okay, benefit but not optimal. Maybe we go up. Beneficial but side effect. Maybe go to a sister drug. You know? mm-hmm. And again, you would think that, well, if you do well on one SSRI, you would do equally well on the other. No. And that's why I tell people if you never want to give up. You trust your body. You know, if you've, I've been to the doctor. I, I tried that medicine and I had a side effect. So it's not going to work. Well, no, the next one might, because remember you're unique. Yeah. We're talking about neurohormones, but there's a lot of hormones we're not talking about. You are your genetics and our genetics do also determine drug metabolism. And it's those often metabolites that create the side effects and how you might metabolize one is going to be different than the next person. So the point is you never give up. You keep talking because it might be that next medicine or it might be that next step. Maybe you go and talk. Maybe medicine isn't right. Then you do start seeking therapy. Or maybe you look to a different class of medicine. But in the end, it's trying different ones till you find out what works for you. And that's the hard part. You know, Remember, when we go back to the discussion that all of us respond differently to different levels of neurohormones. So how one person responds to one specific drug regimen with the exact same symptoms can be different than the next person. And that can create frustration for both doctor and patient. But as long as both doctor and patient understand that, you no, know, you'll get there, you just need to keep talking and work through it, you will work through it. So lots of times there there has to be the time aspect of you've got to give it enough time. Because I'm sure it, 
it takes a little while to even for medications to really be like start affecting you or That's kick in. Yeah. Time, diligence, and expectation is what it's all about. And so in other words, if doctors take, if patients trust their doctor, you know, this is very personal stuff, which is why I love being a family doctor because you get to know people over time. Yeah. And you develop a very trusting relationship. You get to learn things about people that maybe nobody else does. And it's not a voyeuristic thing. It's that that's what helps people when you know who people really are and what they're experiencing. You can begin to know at what level neurochemically you need to begin to help them. Um. And so, you know, you know, to that end, if you invest the time up front, invest in trusting your doctor, your doctor invests the time in talking to you. What are you experiencing? How long has it been going up, going on for? What is it that you are having negative consequences from? Is it in your work? Is it in your relationships? What are family members telling you? That time investment up front makes pays massive dividends down the end. And in the end, you know, like you said, the doctor setting expectation is, is like, look, you don't, we, you know, go into the analogy of running a marathon. You know, I know you want to run a marathon, but you can't even run one mile yet. So we got to get you running that first mile. Then after first mile, you'll run two. You can't go from running one to 26 in a day or a week or a month. And these things are no different. Now it doesn't take that long, but you know, in other words, medications might take three, four, five, six weeks just to start working. And it might take even a little bit longer to see maximal benefit and even make those dosage adjustments. So it's like you said, what were those three things? It was time. It's it's time, diligence, patience. And, and, and in the end, I guess that's the answer to lots of things, right? (laughs) But, but in, but especially in middle, it's, you know, the time to take, to go in the doctor, to listen to you, the diligence that if it doesn't work, you don't give up, you go back and you talk and the patience to believe that, okay, whatever it is, is going to work, but it's going to take work and it's going to take time. Yeah. So I'm really curious, is it possible to actually get to where you want to get with your mental health without medication. I know you've mentioned, you know, therapy, you know, having a counselor. Is it possible to do that? Yes. Yes, it is. And and one way is not the easy way. And I've had some patients ask that, you know, if that's, are medications the easy way to do it? And the answer is no. It's just a different way. Mm. And again, you know, talking, going back to what Western medicine is good at, Western medicine is good at studies, right? You know, taking a group of people with a group of symptoms or symptom set and studying different ways and is there a difference in outcome? And they have shown that you have to do what the person believes in mm. because it will work. In other words, it doesn't have to be both. You know, you can have somebody do medication and do very well. You can have somebody do therapy, and these are, there's a lot of different types of therapies. There's cognitive behavioral therapies and biofeedback. You know, it's not just all therapies, not the same, right? So, just like medication has to be individualized therapy type, which good therapists know through talking with people to do, as long as it's the right therapy type and it's applied over time, you will see similar outcomes. Wow. But, you know, we sometimes, as either doctors or as family members of somebody who say has generalized anxiety, try to direct them. You know, in other words, so let's say you take, you have the best medicine for generalized anxiety, best medicine. Somebody comes in and they clearly have generalized anxiety, but that person does not believe in pharmacotherapy. They don't believe in medicine. It's not what they want to do. We say, look, I've got the best medicine ever made, no side effect, 
you take it, it works wonderfully for generalized anxiety. It's not what they want to do. It's not what they believe in. They can take it, but they probably won't see good outcome. Some people, the flip side is true. They don't really feel comfortable. It's hard enough for them to come in and talk to their doctor. Now, another person, you know, this is very personal. They just don't want, they just don't feel comfortable talking to somebody about this, but they do need help. And they do understand that it's neurochemical. And so you could have the best therapist in the world, knows the best cognitive behavioral therapy, best biofeedback, whatever, and you get them with that therapist. It's not going to work. They don't believe in it. And it's not, this isn't a placebo believe in it. It's just not the way they want to have their mental health care delivered. So it won't be optimal. So in the end, it is talking to people, understanding what their needs are from a neurochemical level, right? So that determines, you know, and what their needs are from a health or mental health delivery and Mm. making sure that you're abiding by it and making sure that people are listening to what their own instinct is telling them, not what they heard or read or their family members telling them is best for them. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Uh, Specifically with the medication, I was just thinking about the way you described that makes it to where it's pretty clear that taking medication, it's not changing your personality. For a lot of people, that's a big worry is if I do go down the medication route, is it going to change who I am? Correct. Yeah. And, and, the most of the times the answer to that is no it actually are are you by were you created generally anxious were you created depressed were you created to be timid no and so what i always tell people is the medicine might actually bring out who you are because yeah. what you're in there what you're in the doctor's office being treated for is not who you are you, you know almost again if you talk about spiritual things we weren't created to be timid we weren't created to be scared we weren't created to be uh, anxiety is a good emotion uh, anger when appropriately applied applied appropriate emotion so that's one of proportionality right so disproportionately mm-hmm. high anxiety disproportionately high sadness disproportionately high anger those aren't how we're meant to be so if medicines can begin to control that disproportionality I challenge sometimes patients when that does come up because it's not an common is, well, it might help you be, it's not going to make you who you are, but it might help bring out who you are. Now, there are medicines that, you know, and these are more in the antipsychotic that can mute somebody's emotional responses, almost make them, especially some of the, what are called the benzodiazepines, which are like things like Xanax, which we really try not to use anyway, that are blunting of people's emotion which is what we don't want to do. So as a general rule, somebody's, well, not as a general rule, somebody's expectation should be when they go to the doctor, they're seeing their therapist, that what is going to ultimately happen is that it's going to help bring out who they are, even if it means a medicine, much more so than they've been able to experience without that help. It's all with the thought process of I'm getting trying to get closer and closer to who God created me to be. Because you've got work to do. That's mm-hmm. the whole name of the game is, you know, we all want to feel well so that we feel well. But in the end, we need to feel well so that we can do what it is that we are here to do. Like you're talking about earlier, those gifts. Yeah. It's hard to be applying your gifts when you just don't feel quite right. That makes perfect sense. I want to focus in for just a moment on anxiety. I thought this was just so beneficial and I want to get your thoughts on it. Uh, a lot of people know they're listening to this, that I had a panic attack 
I'm not sure how long ago, a year and a half ago. And one of the first things I did was I realized, man, I got to go and see Dr. Arp and, and get his thoughts on this and, and start to put in the work to figure out how to, because that's not, like you said, the way that I'm designed to be. And you explained what was happening when I had that panic attack so well. I don't know if you remember, but oh, yeah. would love your for you to describe that to everyone. Yeah. So, you know, when you, so remembering that anxiety is a normal human emotion. So we, we looking, this is on a spectrum to some degree. So we don't want to be afraid of anxiety. Anxiety, again, is a normal human emotion. Uh, you can often see that as anxiety goes up, productivity goes up, but there is a a point at which when anxiety goes up and that when it becomes disproportionate to whatever it is, it becomes counterproductive. As that level continues to go up, it can reach a point of what's called an anxiety attack. Anxiety attacks, and so again, it occurs on a, a spectrum. There's normal anxiety, then there's higher anxiety that somebody is feeling and it is affecting them negatively, but they're still able to put on a good face and good mask and get done what they need to get done. Then that can continue to increase. That's the maybe more the lay term for it is nervous breakdown, but that's an mm-hmm. anxiety attack. Anxiety attacks, again, occur on that same spectrum, but there's a, a stimulus for them. You know, it's maybe a loss of a loved one, uh, problems at work, marriage difficulties, you name it. There can be lots of things. Somebody has an anxiety attack. So it's just extreme anxiety that is making somebody very ineffective. Then there's panic attacks. Panic attacks are a whole different animal. They're, I kind of use they, those two interchangeably. They, yeah, I, and, and, and I shouldn't. And they, and they are. <laughs> well, and they, they, you know, t- again, lay term, they probably are interchangeable, but from a doctor's standpoint, anxiety attacks, you ha- usually have, it's in a situation that seems to drive it, which is what makes panic attacks different and terrible. Although somebody might be under more stress when they have one, there's really no inciting event. Panic attacks just come. They, they can happen out of nowhere. Somebody, yeah, you know, we all have anxiety. But, you know, in the end, a panic attack is, they're, they're, they're abysmal. If you've never had one, the best way to understand a panic attack, a panic attack, when somebody's having a panic attack, they're having a physiological response. So it's something we could all feel, mm-hmm. but most of us will only feel it in a specific situation. So I always challenge people, if you've never had a panic attack, you can close your eyes and you think of this because you would be having the same physiological response in this scenario I'm going to give you that somebody's having a panic attack has. Yeah. So imagine a tank, like SeaWorld, whatever, you know, a tank, large tank, and there is no way out, no ladder out, no door out. It's a tank with high walls and you're in it. And there's also a great white shark. And you know, you know, if you just think about that for a second, you know, a pool-sized tank, no way out, and it's you and a great white shark, you can probably imagine what your body would begin to feel. There's an emotion, a fear, just this overwhelming, like, am I going to be alive in, in a minute? My heart's beating fast right now. Yeah. I'm just thinking about no, it. No, <laughs> I mean, you know, as you think about that, and that is the physiological response that is the physiological response that somebody is having when they are having a panic attack. The main difference is, is that the person who's having the panic attack knows there is no great white shark. They know there is no tank, which is what is so difficult for them because there's no way, they don't know the way out. Mm. But 
if you ever talk to anybody who's had a panic attack and if you've had one, you know this to be true, is that you feel this incredible sense of impending doom. And it comes on suddenly, it comes on quickly, and it is heavy. It is as heavy as that emotion and that feeling that you would have when you're sitting there, you know, swimming in that tank and you see that great white shark. And what I always tell family members is what's very hard for people who are having a panic attack is when people tell them to just breathe and calm down and it's fine. Yeah. In the same way that if you're in that tank with a great white shark and you have a person who's standing outside like, just breathe, just keep swimming. Eat some cheetos. Yeah, it's just, just going to be fine. What would you be saying to that person? You're like, no, it's not going to just be fine. I mean, I'm the one in here with this shark. You're, you know, and, and people mean well, but they don't understand. And that can create more of that frustration and anxiety. Yeah. So the bottom line is, for the person who's in the tank. So, right. In other words, how would you help the person that was in the tank? Well, if you could teach a person how to create a ladder, if you could teach the person how to create a door, in other words, in that scenario, you know, it doesn't fit exactly, but if you had some ability to where you could have somebody, yeah, okay, I can create a ladder here. I can open this door and I'm out of this tank. Well, yeah, you might still feel it coming on. Yeah, but in this tank, I'm in this truck, but you know what? I got a ladder right here. I'm just going to get out. Or if the people who are around you can help you get the ladder or help you realize that there's a door there and you can use it, you can begin to diminish that panic attack. And that is where therapy, you know, deep breathing exercises, cognitive behavioral therapy, you can, people who do have panic attacks, medications can help. In other words, medications can decrease frequency and intensity of panic attacks. Therapy can help people when they feel like they're in that tank, like just breathe. You, you know what to do. You know how to make a ladder. You know how to make a door. I know, you know, you're feeling the shark there. You're feeling the tank. But there are ways you can, you can be trained that. But, you know, that's a long-winded way to a very simple question that you had, which is what is it? It's a physiological fight or flight response that is going haywire. Mm. And and the person the person who's having the panic attack knows it's haywire. They know that there's no shark. They know that there is no impending doom. But in the same way that you would feel that impending doom if you had a great white shark swimming in front of you, that person feels it. For me, I'm just thinking about when it happened to me. I've only had one episode of it. That's what was so frustrating. Exactly what you're saying is I knew that what was freaking me out wasn't wasn't really going to happen you know, that shark wasn't really there. And that's what made it so frustrating was why is my body doing this? And then, and then it just got worse and worse. And so I think one of the huge things for me was I did end up going to see a counselor and I was given some different exercises that whenever I felt, I could tell since I already had one, I started having those symptoms and started feeling that certain way, like, Hey, it's coming on. Like you said, I, I had exercises I was able to do that helped me create a ladder to where That's I was right. able to get out. Um, otherwise, I probably would have just felt trapped again. Yeah, you just have to hope that it goes away. And I'm sure as you and I talked about, so because you have a panic attack, does that mean that you are genetically deficient, mentally deficient, spiritually deficient? Absolutely not. Zero. There is something. We don't know what it is. We don't know what that trigger is. But there is something in your environment, and it, and, it, and it can be many things that come together. It can be cumulative. Maybe it's dehydration, you know, a period of dehydration coupled with a period of sleep deprivation that who knows, but, it can, but there is something that is happening that is working 
on your genetics that does ultimately create that. And so again, it's not that you are deficient genetically. It's just that there has been a series of events and it's not a, it's not a conspiracy against your system, right? It's just life, right? Life, mm-hmm. life happens. And those, that situation, life happening comes together, you know, perfect storm kind of thing that comes together that creates an activation of your fight or flight response. And again, that's the, you know, what I really challenge people and really encourage people to do is you get away from any idea, any idea, even in the smallest sense that because you have panic attacks and this next person doesn't, that that must mean that you were weaker mm-hmm. mentally or physically or spiritually. It, it doesn't. It just means that you have had a series of events. You And again, the hard part is you don't know what they are, which is, makes it hard to prevent it in the future. But something has come together that has worked on your genetics in a manner that has made that fight or flight response activate. I love how you describe everything. It makes it so much more, makes you feel so much more normal in a sense, and also just helps take this huge problem, this huge topic, and to to make it to where it's practical and you realize, hey, this is what's happening. This is what's going on. So I think a big key to what we're talking about here today is communication. It's first of all, realizing, hey, there's not something wrong with me but I can get some people or some resources to help me take steps forward. But it comes down to communication. That's, That's right. the first step is talking to someone or seeing a doctor or going to a yeah, counselor. I think that is. And, and, and even I think before that is acceptance. Mm. But because you accept something doesn't mean you're okay with it. There's a difference between acceptance, submission, and acceptance, and I'm not dealing with this anymore. This, you know, I accept it, but it's not okay. Mm-hmm. And I'm not living another minute, another hour, another day with this. And then I'm going to go talk. And you can't, you, you can't deal with it on your own. We're not built to deal with it on our own. We are, we are social creatures, which is why this whole COVID-19 thing has been mm-hmm. so terrible for a lot of people. And that's why mental health has suffered terribly, because we're not creatures of isolation, we're not spirits of isolation. We are, we are creatures of community. And so when you do, you're like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Then you know that once you accept it, the next step is reaching out, seeking help and talking. So absolutely. Yeah. Is there anything that you would want to kind of finish our conversation with any encouragement for someone out there? I know you've already provided yeah. encouragement throughout, but is there any last statement of, hey, this is what I want you to think about as we close out? You're not alone. Hmm. You're not alone. And there's lots of different experiences that we all have that we hold in that it's not from feeling sorry from ourselves, but maybe we're ashamed of it. Or maybe we do think we're strong enough to deal with it on our own. We all have those experiences. But then when you finally realize that you do need to reach out and you start talking to somebody, well, what do we often find out? Oh, yeah, I've had that happen to me, too. Uh, you know, I've, that happened to my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister. And then you talk to the next person, and, you know, and, and they had that happen, too. And, you know, where I really experienced that indirectly was years and years ago, we went through a miscarriage. And we didn't know anybody that had had a miscarriage. This is, you know, over... 15 years, 16 years ago, we didn't know anybody. And it was devastating, especially for my wife. And she started talking to people, you know, yeah, I've had one too. 
you know, and, and I've gone through it and this, I made it through and talk to the next person. Yeah. You know, I've had one too, or I've had one in my family or, you know, and you start realizing, you know what, you're not alone. You know what, this does happen. And you know what, it happens when you start talking to those people, a lot of them, you know, are good people. You mm-hmm. trust them. And a lot of them we even admire. And you start talking and realizing there are people that you admire and they've gone through it too. And then maybe you start talking to people and you realize that, yeah, they went through that. They got this help. And maybe one of the reasons you admire them is because characteristics that they've gained because of the trials and tribulations that they went through. I think you and I have talked about Mm -hmm. one of my favorite, and this probably came from very young, but I remember being taught very early, the hotter the fire, the purer the gold. You know, you don't get pure gold from unrefinement. And so we... There is scripture that says that the hotter the fire, the purer the gold. What that we all know means is the hotter the tribulation, the more significant, the more you have to do to make it through whatever confronts you, whatever you're scared of, whatever you're trying to run from, the more you turn, confront it. And the harder it is to turn and confront it when you're successful in doing it, the more refined you become. That's the first step. You're not alone. The second step is you can then, through your efforts, seeking help, gaining strength, be that person that maybe to the next person gets them that help. So you can, you not only can you realize that you're not alone, but you realize you can also become an instrument because of what you've experienced. And that is where true strength comes from, realizing that our weaknesses, quote unquote weaknesses, are actually part of our evolution. And that you can then, what comes from weakness is strength. Mm. And it's not just some cliche. It's not just something on a t-shirt or on some poster somewhere, you know, like those little hang in there and it's got the little kitten on the rope, <laughs> yeah. right? It's not some little <laughs> poster on a wall. It's like, no, that really is true. When you talk, mm-hmm. when you hear about people who inspire you, people who you see strong, did they do, were they just born that way and they just got that way? No, when you really talk to them and you really hear and what they're inspiring you is, they're usually inspiring you through something that they have overcome that was terribly devastated and they could have given up. Maybe they could have turtled, gone into themselves, reclusive. Well, then how would they have helped that next person? How would they have served as an inspiration? And you got to believe again, that you have that ability, but it isn't going to happen. It, that's the 26th mile, right? Yeah. But you know, the first, uh, the, what, what is that? A uh, thousand yard journey or a thousand step journey begins with the first step. And it's true. And you can get to the thousand step, but you can't, you can't skip steps. So the first step is accepting who you are, realizing you're not alone, choosing what resources you want, but recognizing that you can't do it on your own. And then having, and again, this develops over time, but having a plan for how you are going to use that to reach others and help others. That's where real healing in these things starts. Because, you know, when you talk about mental health, you know, it is a preventative thing, but it can also be a healing thing, much like physical health. And so once you heal, you want to prevent. And prevention comes through talking, exercising, good eating. That's that interconnection. Spirit, you know, seeking spiritual purification and refinement. They all go together. And that's really how we're going to see this mental health take steps forward is through one person 
talking to another and helping another. And then that just continues on. It's not going to just be this great video that's put out or one person's not going to change it. It's self-help book. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's us taking steps to, to get ourselves to a healthy place and then helping others looking back and grabbing a hand and pulling them up with us. That's how change is going to happen. In times where you feel like you have no control, remembering that you can still control a lot that remember you still control reaching out you still control what is going to happen or what is not going to happen. Remember, not acting or not seeking help is also a choice, right? So either yeah. way you choose. You, you choose in those times, and it can be hard, but it is through those those trials and tribulations and those hard things, you got to make a choice. You, you know, it's it was some movie. What was the old saying? You either got to get to living or get to dying. And it's a choice. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of life that's there, even when it seems like there's none. The time where there really seems like is a panic attack. But you realize they clear. The, the, whatever emotion you're experiencing any time, good or bad, doesn't last forever. And realizing that life exists in between those emotions, right? The happiest of happy and the lowest of lows. Life truly exists. It's yeah. not, not going to last forever. But you got to seek it out. So that the time that it is those low, low is minimized. They're not going to ever go away, but that they're minimized. Beautiful. I absolutely loved our conversation. And I feel like you were able to explain so many things that me personally, I've had questions about. And as I've talked to others, questions that they've had, you brought so much clarity to and insight. And I'm walking away encouraged. And I know that each person that listens to this is going to walk away encouraged and hopefully ready to take the next step. Absolutely. Whatever, wherever they are on that journey to take the next step. Um, so thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Art. Pleasure's mine. I'm sure as you can tell, I like to talk. So <laughs> it was, it was ple- great. Pleasure's all mine. Happy to come back anytime you'll have me. Yeah. And so I really want this to be something that's a benefit in Dr. Arp. He, he has the mindset of, I'm ready to help people, as he mentioned. And so uh, if this is something that's that's a benefit and a neat experience, then uh, we definitely want to do this again. And so let me know if this is something that, that you would like to hear more of. And you can send me some questions that you might have for Dr. Arp. And next time I get together with him and do this, then I can ask those specific questions uh, to him But hope this was an encouragement. I hope that you walk away today knowing that you are loved by Christ, that you are exactly who God created you to be, and that this journey is going to get better. That's right. And that what you're going through right now might be part of a bigger plan. Mm. You just got to be part of the plan. And again, the... God gives us the tools. You'll never, what's that all? You'll never get any more than you can handle. Yeah. And that's truth. It's just spiritual truth. So when you accept that and know that this could be part of the plan, embrace it, tackle it, move on. But part of moving on is helping. Yeah. One day at a time. One day at a time. Y'all have a great rest of your day. Thank you, Dr. Art. It's my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe and share with others so they can join us on this journey. I'll see you next time.